Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Hello there, and welcome to the podcast that doesn't just get its guests to talk about food, it feeds them too and feeds them properly. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, I lunch with a comedian, singer, actor, presenter, and impressionist who really made his name in the much-loved sitcom Gavin and Stacey alongside his friend from school days, Ruth Jones. He presents the long-running panel show Would I Lie to You, and he plays the companion to Steve Coogan's stand-in restaurant critic for The Observer in four series of The Trip. But today, a lucky man, he gets to eat with the real Observer restaurant critic. He reveals what it's like getting a private performance from Shirley Bassey, his adventures as a voiceover artist, and how Ronnie Corbett left messages on his answer phone. It is, of course, the multi-talented Rob Bryden. And we go, wow, you know, Shirley Bassey, it's amazing. She's gone for about five minutes. She comes back, right? She flung open the curtain and she went, the minute you walked in the joint. (laughs) And she started, she did about a verse and a chorus. And she walked around the table, draping her hands. And David and I were looking at each other going, oh my God. There is something lovely and quite old school about my guest, Rob Bryden, today. So I thought I'd kind of match him to something a bit old school. And that is Signor Sassi, which is a brilliant Italian restaurant tucked away on a little alleyway, not far from Harrods, not far from Hyde Park, where they do things the way Italian restaurants used to do and here still do. And I think Rob's going to like this. Let's go inside. Hello. Come on in. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Lovely to see oh, you. Oh, you're a lovely warm. Have I got a lovely warm hand? Oh, stay there for a minute. I will. Are you cold? Freezing. Yeah, I didn't dress correctly. Okay. Oh. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you very, Thank much. You very much. Thank you. Um, Rob, right at the beginning of the trip, uh, Steve Coogan's voice is on a voice message to you, and he says do you want to come with me on this journey because I've been asked to stand in for the restaurant critic of The Observer, which of course I am. So my first question is, how does it feel to finally actually get to eat with the real restaurant critic of The Observer? It's a thrill. I mean, uh, what human could react in any other way? There, There were big shoes to fill, Jay. And I don't mean just in a sort of a hereditary genetic, Disposition of the foot. Of way, I, yeah. I mean, in a in a status and and standing. Although those foot concerns have they cleared up? Not entirely. No. And I've had surgery a couple of times. I'm told as well. they never will entirely. <laughs> you learn to live with them. You, you'll die with it then, yes. rather than of it. My, my, the the large shoes that I have to fill are a part of me now. Mm, mm, and mm. I hope Steve appreciates it. And you know what they say about uh, big feet, big socks. At the point which we were talking just a couple of days ago. On the masked singer. <laughs> I know where you're going. Yeah, you know where I'm going. The traffic cone was revealed to be one Alad Jones. Mm. And in the run-up, there was a lot of people who were suggesting it was you. I think it must be the 
the Welshness of his voice, but I could tell it was Alid. You sing? Yes. When you'd worked out that it was Alid Jones, was it a bit of a thrill that people were thinking it was you? My own kids would say to me, is it you, Dad? I had said to them, well, I said, look, when you do The Masked Singer, you're not allowed. You have to, you have to say it. And they go, oh, Dad. And I said, okay, no, it's not me. But they, but they wouldn't believe that, you see. My older kids, who are now 27, 25, and 22, they uh, have all been to various things of mine over the years. And once my eldest girl came to a recording of Would I Lie To You, and I've been doing it for years. <laughs> Season 426. It now, is now, 427. Right, and I think she sorry. arrived and she said, she said, she said, all right, is, is, is this the one you host? <laughs> and then another time my son came out to Pinewood to watch it. And when he got to the gate, there was a bit of hassle, you know. They weren't going to let him in. And he came out with the immortal line, the host is my father which has kind of a, bit, a, biblical, it does have a, biblical, a biblical quality yes, to it. It really it, it does. Wasn't, it's not an entitled thing or, or nothing like that. It was, it was just him saying, oh, well, no, it's sort of been arranged. And another one, like, my dad works on it or my dad is the host. The host is my father. But it does have a kind of Methodist yeah. sound from yeah. the valleys. It really does. I love that. Rob, this is Paolo who will be serving us today. Paolo, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you. I hope you enjoy Signor Sassi. Now, listen, we're at Signor Sassi, Italian restaurant. Um, I need to point out something to you. If you look at the antipasti, parma ham and melon. Lovely. Isn't that part of what you once said would be your last meal? Yeah, but you have to understand, as I'm sure you know. You mean you were making it up? When you get asked these questions, <laughs> there's, there's a, there's, which I've been asked so many times, you, you, there is a big part of you that goes, oh, I don't know. I'll, oh, I'll, I'll say something. <laughs> All right, well, choose what you like. It's a big menu there. <laughs> I'm not even going to show you where the scallops are. Well, ex yeah, scallops I had almost every time on the trip. I like scallops. I love parma ham and melon. I'm not feeling especially adventurous, so maybe I will go for... Yeah, I'm going to have the parma ham and are melon. You? Yeah, I am. I'll start with the carpaccio. Yeah. And can I then have the gamberoni diavola? And I'll have some zucchini frittis, please. Oh, look at look at the way you've ordered. That's an alpha male ordering there. <laughs> and here comes the beta, um, or the gamma. For the main, seafood risotto, seafood risotto. please. Yes, yes. yes. Right. And I'll have some well, if we both have zucchini, what's it? Is that too much, do you think? No, they're really great, and I don't want you having any of mine. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Do you want any wine, or are you all right? I shouldn't. I, I've got this, the, you know, I know it'd be more fun for you if I did. Well, yeah, the whole intention was to get you completely right. Well, I'll tell you what, i tell you what I would do. tell you what I would have at lunchtime, normally, yeah. if I'm going out. I would have, it's quite camp, but I like that. I'd have a Kia Royale. Oh, it's great. I love a Kia Royale at lunch. A little bit of cassis. It's got to be a blush. Sometimes you ask someone to make it and they f they s swamp it mm. with the cassis. I think it should just be oh, on the edge. Oh, I, I agree with that. And what determines whether they bring you a still wine as opposed to fizzy? Is there something in the title? Because that happens sometimes. Oh, it's and just I'm, a Kia. And I'm disappointed. So a Kia Royale is with champagne. Is that right? And just a Kia is without Oh, it. do you know what? Sometimes I've asked for a Kia thinking that I'm being casual and I'm so familiar no, with it. No, you've asked for a specific thing. But I, oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's the difference. <laughs> I go, what the hell is this? <laughs> One of the things I thought was great about Signor Sassi, I don't know if you saw on the way up, was there's lots of photographs on the wall of that classic showbiz. I love that. You do love it, yes, do you? Where does that, do. that come from? When I was growing up, if you went to a restaurant, there would 
off if there were pictures of anyone, Frank Bruno would be there. Is there? Yeah, and Russ Abbott. Is this twinned with San Carlo? Yes. Great. Okay, so whenever I'm in Manchester, which isn't that often, but, you know, if I'm touring, I'll always do Manchester, sometimes telly, I'll try and go to San Carlo. And the, the walls there are just festooned with, with pictures. Are you on them? I think they took my picture the last time I was there, but I might be imagining that. I... I it's kind of awkward when you when you're there. You wanted to go and with mine? Yeah, I know because because they make a fuss of you, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes some of the other diners will come over to your table and, and want to say hello to you and have a picture with you, and then you are kind of aware that because there are thousands. I mean, everybody from Pavarotti to I don't know someone who's been on some dreadful low rent show, right? So you'd think, well, I could fit in somewhere there, couldn't I, in that spectrum? So there is a slight sort of, yeah. So I, I think that the, I think they did take my photo, but I, I'm not sure. I don't know on whether they and, put it And up you can't that. ask. No, of course no, not, you no. Can't ask. When you were a kid growing up in Port Talbot, was that, we're, we're of a very similar age, I think, that kind of Saturday night variety thing yes. on TV, was that something that you were drawn to as a kid. Yes. I, I liked the Generation Game. Um, you know, the two Ronnies in their own way was a variety show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember, I mean, his name will come up at some point, Steve Coogan. So I remember Steve telling me that he he didn't go to see Greece. No, neither did I. I didn't go because I thought it looked a bit rough. <laughs> Honest, really? Honestly. You thought, not for the likes of me. Honestly. Or if not... Is that because you've just seen the shot of Olivia Newton-John having been stitched into her black <laughs> trousers? And... No, I don't know what it was. I, 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 had no, I, I had no enthusiasm to see it. He didn't see it, right, because, his words, I knew it was for the masses, right? Now, I, now at that age, I didn't know. I had no concept of this idea of there being such a thing as the masses. And I wouldn't have that concept for many years. I mean, probably my... 20s or, good God, maybe even later. Did you uh, see yourself as having a role in that kind of world? Was that the ambition? I, I wasn't aware of anything other than the mainstream. Other than saying that I like in comedy, I'm kind of proud to say that I, I liked people that perhaps had a bit of edge to them. I mean, like who? Well, Barry Humphreys. Okay, now oh. ba ba Barry became mainstream Saturday night, but my God, within that thing, he was as sharp as any humorist or satirist. He did things that were so close to the edge. Yes. And sometimes well over it. Yeah. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Although although not the, not the Derek and Clive stuff. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore were quite a mainstream comedy act, mm. but they also had this... This alter ego. Well, they were they were a mainstream act, but they were sharp as hell. I mean, yeah. this 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 term mainstream tends to have a pejorative sort of yeah, it, a well, negative side to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm having While you've been away, we've been talking, and are you going to have one as well? Yes. Could we have two Kia Royales, please? Oh, absolutely. Thank you very, very much. much. When you met Ruth, mm. and you, you were at secondary school together, weren't you? <laughs> Yes. Was she immediately someone you thought this is? She's like me. Yeah. My memory of it is that she was part of the not the drama society. There wasn't that, but we had a brilliant young drama teacher called Roger Bunnell and put on shows. She put in a big musical each year, so we did West Side Story, which I got a tiny. It was all cast, but I managed to be one of the Jets. I had one line, which was "It hurts, it hurts." Here I was arrived. 
There you go. Was Ruth Jones getting bigger parts than you in these shows? Sit, how dare you, Jay? Why, why would you make such an assumption? In Guys and Dolls, I was Sky and she was Miss Adelaide. So there are four there are four leads in Guys and Dolls. Sky and Sarah, Adelaide and Nathan, two couples. So there we are. Is there a, a particular bond between two people who started There's the two of you from a, you know, from one secondary school. Oh yeah, it does give us it does give us a hell of a bond and it's quite emotional because you know, known of donkey's years. You're about to do another series. We've we've done a one-off kind of playhouse thing. Gainer and Ray. Yes, yeah. Which is... it, it, as I understand it, you're only allowed to be in series which have a male and a female name in the title. Is right. that right? Strange, isn't it? Marion and Jeff, yeah. Gavin and Stacey, Gainer and Ray. Was there another one as well? Was there, have I done Let's pretend else? there is. There was an animation I did years ago called Bob and Margaret. Years ago, so there's another one. Oh, and I did a thing recently with Dawn French called Roald and Beatrix. I do think I have more than my fair share of engendered titles. Yeah. It's a relationship that's still going on yeah. professionally. Yeah. The best thing we ever did together in terms of enjoyment was the record we made for Comic Relief. We, we did the, this version of Islands in the Stream, which we'd sung in the show. And for Comic Relief, they got Tom Jones on it. And we went to Las Vegas to film the um, video. That was incredible to, to, you know, because I also factor jet lag into it, which heightens everything. So we fly in and we're filming this thing. And Ruth and I just could not believe it. Because Tom Jones is a big deal wherever you are, but especially if you grew up in Wales. Where were you put up in Vegas? We stayed at Planet Hollywood. Dreadful. Was it? I've always said there's a lot of hotels that are great if you're in the process of getting off with someone, basically, right? Getting off. But if you're not doing That's that... That's a 1979. Well, did you get off with it? Well, you know what I mean, though, yeah. right? Okay. But it, you know, then, then all the dark furniture and everything is, is kind of, ooh. But if you're just going about your business, you don't really want it. The opposite of that, there's a hotel in Los Angeles called the Mondrian. Oh, yeah. Which I've stayed at. I mean, yonks ago. The rooms are all light. Everything is white. And I remember talking to Reese Evans about it. And he said, oh, I said, yeah, I stayed there. Bloody hell. He said, it's like being in an asylum. He goes, I want to see furniture. <laughs> and you met Tom before you did the song? Yeah, I'd, I'd liked him for years. You know, long before his renaissance. Long before he went on Jonathan Ross and suddenly he was cool again and he did Kiss. I'd liked him, I think, well, as long as I can remember, really. Was that, was your attraction to him as a performer out of the fact he was another Welsh guy yeah. who... That's right. It certainly helps that we, well, we've got lots of them, you know. We, we've got Richard Burton, Anthony Hopkins, Shirley Bassey. When I was Can you do, up, Shirley? Uh, go on. Well, given the chance. Um, uh, David Walliams, who's a friend of mine, did a show for the BBC, a big special with her. And one night I was going out with David to see, I think we were going to see Catherine Tate live. He said, I'm having a meeting uh, with Shirley at the Ritz, so why don't you come and see us there? Well, it just so happened the night before I had hosted, I think it was the Evening Standard Film Awards, and she'd been in the audience. And I'd met her once or twice before. So I arrived at the Ritz and I got taken through to, I don't know what it was, maybe a big restaurant that wasn't being used or a ballroom or something. And they were sat off in a curtained area, so you couldn't see who was in there. So I went in, and there she was with David and the producers and, and Shirley's assistant. And she said, oh, I don't know. I said, oh, you were so good last night. You were so funny. Which, of course, David was furious about. But 
So I said, oh, thank you, Shirley. Thanks very much. So we sit down and they're talking about the show. And well, I wonder, you know, that bit, maybe what I should do is and all this stuff. And then at one point she says, right, I got to go to the little girl's room or whatever. So she gets up to go and we go, wow, you know, Miss Shirley Bassett, it's amazing. She's gone for about five minutes. She comes back, right? And this is not exaggerating. She flung open the curtain and she went, the minute you walked in the joint. <laughs> and she started, she did about a verse and a chorus. And she walked around the table, draping her hands. And, and David and I were looking at each other going, oh my God, it was sublime. So if you ever do get the chance to meet Dame Shirley Bassey, she won't disappoint. Well, that's, that's what I want to hear. Thank you. That was, that was great. Thank you. Very love. Hi there, I'm Ollie. I'm the executive producer on Out to Lunch. And this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Imagine you had the time it takes to have lunch. Gifted to you each day, an extra hour. What would you do with that time? For me personally, after listening to Out to Lunch in a swanky new restaurant, I'd love to spend more time actually sampling the food there myself. Now, a lot of us wish we had more time. But in reality, if something is really important, then we make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. It can help you clear your head and take control of your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, it's entirely online to save those precious minutes. With over a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. That's betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Ooh. I am the risotto, thank you. I am the risotto. I am the risotto, as John Lennon once said. Oh, thank you. Thanks for you. And I have the prawns with garlic and chili. You are the prawns. I am the prawns. Thank you. Zucchini fritti. I'm glad we got two because I don't think one of these were done for us. No, no. At what point did you realise you had the ability to imitate voices? As long as I can remember. You know, when I was a kid, um, the thing I always say, some people can do keepy-uppies, can't they, with a ball. I could never do that. But I could to Kermit the Frog. <laughs> You're known for doing Tony Hopkins, for Tom Jones. Mm-hmm. Does a, a Welsh accent give you, a, if they're Welsh, does it give you a starting point? Oh, yes, of course, yes, yes, because you understand it. Yeah. And Ronnie Corbett's Ronnie Celtic Cor- Fringe. Well, it's a very sort of posh Edinburgh sort of accent, you know, with his, his vowels were wonderful. And as he got older, his voice became this beautiful, rich. I've got answerful messages from him still. He says, he says, Robert, sir, Ronnie calling. And he was on this bright, crisp winter's morning. <laughs> and it's deep better than that. It's deeper than that. It's, it's uh, terrific, yeah. So for me, and, and I, 
And I, and I always have to say, I do a handful of impressions. I do them again and again and again. But I'm not a John Culshaw or somebody like that who can do zillions, right? I can't. I have my little, my little group. And they're always people I like. I don't use them to spear people. I use them to elevate people, to, to celebrate people. At, at 20, you left drama school because you pretty much landed a gig on radio. That's right. And you did it. For, you're on the radio for six mm -hmm, years. Mm -hmm. Six years in your 20s is a very, very long time. Yes, it is. Yeah. Did you assume that that was your life? When I was a kid, I was really interested in radio, actually. And I, I found the idea of being a disc jockey on the radio. In those days, it would have been Radio 1. I found it very appealing, quite sexy in, in, in the sense of it being exciting. And I remember I sent off for a book called How to Be a DJ. Remember in those days? Now you'd look it up on the internet. But in those days, you used to send a stamped addressed envelope, right? I'd see pictures of DJs at Radio 1 sitting in front of those two decks and having cartridge machines for the, um, what are they called, jingles. Yeah. And I, I thought it just really appealed to me. Did you get to that point where you were driving your own desk? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Do you think you could I, still do it? Yeah, uh, I have. When I did, um, I've sat in on Radio 2 for a few people. I've sat in for Steve Wright. I've sat in for Ken Bruce. I think I drove the desk for one of them. I can't remember now. When did that go from, would you like to do a commercial voiceover? Um, Which eventually became your bread and butter. Mm. So I'm on the radio, doing a lot on the radio. Eventually get let go of from the station. When you say let go, they sacked you. This is very tasty, by the way. I have to say, my, my prawns are very good as well. This is delicious. Mean, I wish I wasn't talking quite so much, but... Uh, no, I'm sorry, the reason you're here. I know. What can you do? What um, can you do, yeah. A new editor came in. So you know about this, right? New editor. They want new things, and they've got to make space. So in came this new editor, a lovely woman called Megan, and um, who said, look, sorry, but, you know, it's not worked out. So, yeah, so. But I still had a few shows left. I was doing a phone-in, and there was a woman on the phone, I think, from Earth. They're going, hey, Rob, how are you? I was going, hey, how are you doing? Uh, will you play Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond? Yes, of course I will. And then, rrr, 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 and they go, uh, what's that? She goes, oh, sorry, Megan, be quiet. And I said on air, Megan, we've got a bitch called Megan here. Yeah. <laughs> Just quite unlike me. <laughs> Were you quite cross? Did you get a memo from the BBC on headed paper? I, I, I honestly can't remember whether or not I did. I, I don't know. I, I suspect far more likely no one was listening. Eventually, you're into voiceovers. Oh, yes. And, you uh, you know, two or three a day was not unusual, sometimes mm -hmm. four or five. I, I have to ask you, I believe one of the things you did was the voiceover for a video on what to expect when you go for your colonoscopy. Yeah, I did, yeah. Uh, as a man of a certain age, has that proved useful uh, information in time? It's, it's always good to know. The more knowledge is power, Jay, is what I say. Yeah, I did. This is years ago. I had to say something like, the probe will then be inserted into your... Da -da -da -da. And I think it was something like, at this point, you may pass wind. This is perfectly normal. Or something like that. And it was just, just my, my... It's a very comforting voice. Yeah, I got a nice voice. You know, it's been, thank God. I mean, my God. You know, your voice is, is a freak of nature, isn't it? It's just, it's just chance. If I think about my life and my career, my voice has been my greatest asset, you know, more than wit, because you don't need wit to say, um, bounty, taste the exotic. Did or, you do bounty? Oh, I did everything. I did that. I did um, have a break, have a Kit Kat. I did that. I did, you know when you've been tangoed. I did Gaviscon Cool. What a feeling. 
I did Crunchy Nut Cornflakes. Well, they are ludicrously tasty. I did Sainsbury's. Try something different. Can I just say that uh, all this free advertising, if any of these companies, <laughs> if any of these companies are now listening to this podcast and want to sponsor us, please get in touch. No, or, or, oh. or if they just feel a moral <laughs> obligation to send you some money. Yes, that would be great. By the time... Do we call it your break? Mm -hmm. About 2000, you're 35, Marin and Jeff Mm -hmm. comes along. Had you thought that wasn't going to happen? Yes, right at the end, right before it did. And leading up to that, I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm going to be a voiceover guy and I'll get a job on Three Counties Radio. I I, I knew I could could always do that. Were you resigned to it or were you unhappy about it? I was kind of resigned to it, I was, you know, because it's not a bad life. We were, oh, sure. we were going off on skiing holidays, nice car, nice house, you know, it was fine, nice life. And then one agent, and I can't remember who it was, got me seen for lock, stock and two smoking barrels. Uh, the guy Richie felt. That's right. Big hit. I went and had my meeting with him to play this crappy role of the traffic warden. He says, anybody could have done it, right? So I'm there. So I went and did that. And then you would, it's, this is great. It's what you dream of as an actor. I remember I bumped into Stephen Moyer, the actor, on Wardour Street. We'd done a hat-trick drama together. I was a crappy part playing a policeman this time who had to say to Prunella Scales, is this your car? I mean, rubbish. And Stephen said, hey, you know that film you're in? Because I don't think Stephen's in it, <laughs> unless I'm forgetting. He said, you know that film you're in, that Lockstock thing? He has a lot of, uh, what to talk about, apparently... Tom Cruise held a screening of it in Hollywood. Now, in those days, I didn't realise that's what actors do. These screenings happen all the time. Nonetheless, sure, it's, not, it's, a, good, it's a good thing, you know. I, I said, oh, really? And then the next thing I remember is I'm walking along the upper... We lived in East Sheen then, walking along the upper Richmond Road, and I used to buy Empire. I used to love film. I used to love it. Empire was a great Empire magazine. Empire magazine, yeah. yeah. I used to, oh, my God, film, film, film. And I opened it and they reviewed it, right? And they loved it. And they mentioned me. And now I've got a tiny part. And they said, their words were, blah-de-blah, blah-de-blah. And an extremely unlucky traffic warden, Robert Bryden. And the canny part of my brain knew that that was leverage. So what I did was I got a, a, a nice video camera. I wrote a script to four characters. One of them was Keith Barrett from Marion and Jeff, the other three other things. With my best friend, we went out, we filmed this thing. I then paid an, an, an editing facility. I paid a graphics company to, I, I designed a cover for the VHS and I called it Robert Bryden, an extremely unlucky traffic warden. And on the back, I put fresh from his breakout performance in Lock, Stock and just one of And is this the one that Steve yes. saw? So you said Steve Coogan saw this? Mm-hmm. Because I knew Julia Davis, because we'd been in an improv together. The two important people saw it, Steve and Hugo Blick, whom I made Marion and Jeff with, who was working the Beep, and who I'd been at college with. We were never that close, but I had been at college with him. I had some really good fortune, right, which you need. If we jump forward to the trip, there's a version of a relationship between you and Steve in that. Did it take you a while to get to a point where you were equals, or has that never happened? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Because I started as his fan. A fan. I'm still an admirer. I yeah. think he's possibly the greatest comic talent in Britain. I would say that. He's not without his faults. I don't know who you would put above Steve Coogan, right? Especially in what he's done with Alan Partridge. I mean, if that was the only thing he'd ever done. Yeah, the ability to keep a character going and growing and developing over 20-whatever oh, yes, years. Yes, I think that's uh, just because he has evolved, you see. 
initially was very much a fan meeting, you know, someone that he admires. And you get to know each other. And then we started to work together. And um, when the trip was first proposed by Michael Winterbottom, you were resistant. Oh, we said no, I think twice, maybe three times, yeah. And what was it that finally tipped you over the edge to say, oh, sod it, let's do this? Well, first of all, the thing that put us off it was being ourselves or or a version of ourselves. It seemed indulgent. Also, this the whole improvised thing seemed to have been done to death. I remember Michael saying, well, what we do is we'll be at a different restaurant each week and it's half an hour and you and Steve just talk. I mean, no, no, that, that's, that does Michael a disservice because there's a lot of structure written and indeed conversations are written as well. M- Michael does, I think, far more than people sure. realise. But having said that, the, bit that pe- the bits that people remember tend to be the improvised flights of fancy that we do. So, you know. I remember saying to Michael, six half hours? I said, I said, I think you could get one good half hour of us just improvising. But I was underestimating. Four you know. series later. <laughs> I know. Well, I was underestimating our, our, our ability, I suppose. For those of us in the restaurant reviewing business, there are already actually about 10 of us. It's not very many. It was quite striking how real it was. Really? Oh, there was a particular moment. I, I think it's in the first, in fact, I know it's in the first series, where you're sitting there and one of you says, you drive all this way to sit in front of a bowl of orange soup. And then you've got to say something about it. <laughs> and... That's what you're paid for. Did you eat a load of that food? Yeah, we had to eat um, every course three times. On that first series, I put on nine pounds. I'd gone years. Whenever I'd eat in a scene, I wouldn't. I'd push it around my plate because I, I worried about continuity. Because I don't know if people understand, but you shoot a scene from one angle, then you shoot the same scene from another angle. So you need to be doing. You need to be in, in vaguely the same position. So that would involve remembering when you put the fork to your mouth on what line and everything. But then when I did Gavin and Stacey, I found that if you are actually eating in a scene, it adds, it's a psychological trick of the audience, it adds a degree of realism. It's the same as if you're actually driving a car in a scene. Steve was being very, you know... Moving uh, around the plate. Yeah, he was. So I put on all this weight at the end of that first one. The nation, in fact, most of the world, because it's been screened in many places, thanks you for your, huh. your, your sacrifice. <laughs> um, oh, listen, yeah. Well, I... <laughs> I think we're very good restaurants as well. In the first one, we went to the York Arms, where Alan Bennett had been staying the night before, and we knew he was going to be there. And I'd never met him, although my wife had worked with him. But you have done him many, many yes, times. Yes, yes, I adore him. And um, the crew went on ahead of me and Steve. And when we arrived, it was all, is, is he still here? One of the guys said, oh, no, he's, he's gone. But he did say, oh, what, what, what are you doing? And he said, oh, we're doing this thing with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. And he said, oh, give my love to Rob. <laughs> You'd never met him, but he... No, but he, he'd worked in my wife, so I think that's, that's why. Yeah. You have said that there was a point when you were, I think you were in the ruins of Pompeii. Yes. And you were, I think Michael had just given you the subject to talk about. Oh, you, yeah. And you had nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that happens, you know, I mean... This, imp- this improvisation lock is all well and good when the, when the juices are flowing. But you learn, just relax. The best thing you can do is relax. Something will come along. You, you, mustn't, you mustn't panic. You seem to have quite actively avoided anything edgy. <laughs> <laughs> and whether that is a function of what you find funny and entertaining or of personality. Number one, this comes back to Steve as well. Steve is not afraid of conflict. 
In fact, I sometimes think he relishes it. Oh, well, the whole hacked off thing and press intrusion yes. and level. I mean, he went r- right into so, that. So Steve is very, Steve, and I admire him hugely. He has the courage of his convictions. He will put his head above the parapets. But also, in a, in a creative setting, I think Steve, without putting words in his mouth, it, it believes that a bit of conflict can help the creative process. I don't have an appetite for conflict in almost any area. Now, you talk about edgy, it is possible to be, thank you very much indeed. Dessert menu. Thank you very much. It's possible to be edgy without creating an uproar. You you can be edgy, by which I mean in your humour and your wit, it can be sharp, it can have edge, and it can have bite, without causing something that the Daily Mail want to run and run and the government use to distract from other things, you know. They... But do you also have a, um, a highly tuned filter for it? For example, when you're doing Would I Lie to You, which I think you're on series 15 now and you've been recording for about 16 years, do you ever stop or take a note and go back to the producer and say, can we cut that because that's just going to... It's more often not the case, but it can be the case. Yeah, that at the end of the show, I walk up the stairs to the, uh, the where the dressing rooms are and we go, hey, good show, good show, whatever, or ooh, hard work, or whatever it is you say. You normally say it's a good show. And uh, I'll say, oh, you know that bit where I said something, we'll lose that, yeah? Well, that's, that's perfectly, you know, I imagine that happens in almost all shows. There is one analysis of what I lie to you, which is that it's basically a detailed analysis of the relationship between three middle-aged men Aging visibly in front of <laughs> you're doing a, a tour at the moment, a night of music and laughter. Yes. What does the band play you the on? The band with? play a strange combination of um, it's this kind of a made-up tune. There's a little bit of the Welsh national anthem. There's a hint of that in there. So it goes, and I got Jim oh, Carter. So we're right in by any means necessary territory. The Armenian national anthem would have just confused people. I think it would have done. The Scottish, I mean, they'd have gone, well, why? I, I thought you'd... Why are they playing the Flower of Scotland? So, um, yeah, there's a... And then Jim Carter kindly recorded a thing where he goes, ladies and gentlemen, it is time. Please put down your mobile phones. You have to say that now. Live in the moment, very important, and welcome Rob Brydon. And they go, hey. And he goes, just that bit. I walk out and I take the applause and I do a silly song about the town that we're in. Although interestingly, when I did London, I was at the Palladium. Now, it doesn't work there. I go, um, Cleethorpes, the town that I love. It's just a kind of old school parody. Cleethorpes, I put no town above. The people, the places, the bright smiling faces of Cleethorpes. I love you, Ray. And that's the beginning. And yeah, you do that to London. They're going to... Exactly. It doesn't mean anything. So at the Palladium, we said, the Palladium, the room that I love. And then they have, they have that identity of for one night and on, yeah, we are the Palladium. It's so interesting that you can't... London doesn't have that identity. Well, it's, I think it's also that, dare I say it, they're not feeling privileged that you came to see them. Very <laughs> much so. They're Very much expecting so. it. Yeah, yeah. Your love of music mm. is significant, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And I think the people would be a little surprised to know that you weren't immediately going to do this, that David Walliams pretty much had to tell you to go and do something well, that yeah, was risky. That's right. Always sung, school musicals, right? 
when I was a DJ on the radio, did humorous songs, right? As, as, as awful as that sounds, have sung on, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, Gavin and Stacey. When I did the Rob Brydon show, I sang with all sorts of people from like Mick Hucknall to Tom Jones to all sorts of people, la di da. I guested on my friend Joe Stilgo's thing at the uh, Lyric Hammersmith. I've done a few things with Joe. Producer in the audience of that show said, why don't you, because this was a cabaret that Joe was doing. You should do something like this. I said, oh, I know I've been, and I had been thinking about doing a nice intimate cabaret. I said, well, I'd like to, I said, look, I said, look, you organize it then. Just you go on and organize it and I'll do it. So the first thing we did was we auditioned six musical directors, all of whom were fantastic. But Paul Herbert, who I am with, was my, we just got on really well and what a talented, oh, what he's done to my voice with his vocal techniques, astonishing. What next? That's one of those questions we always have We've to We've got ask. someone coming around this afternoon to, <laughs> to look at my son's PC because well, there's a problem with it. That's important. Um, I mean, are you, are you going to carry on touring? Because it's gone very, very well and people love it. Yeah, it's, it has. It has. And, and I, I think and you I, enjoy and I, it You hugely. know what? I, I will indulge myself in saying it's gone well because, because it was taking a chance. And we, we touched on this thing. It was me and Walliams. He said... Um, we, we were on holiday, <laughs> well, visited on, we didn't have gone away together, but we visited each other while on holiday. And uh, you know, I said, what career advice would we give each other? And his to me was, take more chances. I thought, oh, okay. Fine. The other advice he gave me with this show is he came to one of those early ones at Crazy Cox, which seats 90 people. And he said, don't ditch the comedy. Because what I had done in wanting to go, hey, look, I'm going to sing, is most of the comedy had gone. And I went, and it was a stupid thing. And I went, oh, oh, yeah. So that was very good advice. So I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, let, let's, 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 like an EQ thing, you know, let's adjust what, it. What advice did you give him? Uh, that's still with lawyers. You, is you, it? You'd have to, uh, you'd have to, ask. when you when you have him on this, you okay. ask him. And that's for him to disclose. What kind of table manners has he got? Can he, does he eat with his hands or is he? Oh, okay? no, he's very, my God. I tell you what, nobody eats in restaurants more often than David Williams, I can assure you. We have the dessert menu in front of oh, us. Um, okay. And while you have a look at that, I'm going to say, uh, Rob Ryden, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Oh, well, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. We're done, are we? We're not going to talk over dessert? Well, we can. Well, but look, if you decide that what, what occurs over pudding yeah. is rubbish, then listener, goodbye. Yeah, perfect. Would you like dessert? Yeah, why not? What a hoot. Thank you so much to Rob Bryden. And I can assure you that his photo is going up on the wall of Signor Sassi in Knightsbridge as I speak. Thank you so much to the folks there. Uh, and do go to robbryden.live for tour dates of a night of songs and laughter. If you love the show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with literally everyone you know and a few people you don't as well. Um, comment, rate us five stars please it all helps spread the word so that we can make more of these out to lunch is a something else and jay rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay rayner and robert rickenberg the recording engineer was leaf troop and the mix engineer was gulliver tickle assistant producers are Anya das and bethany hocken the producer is selena ream and the executive producer is darby doris next time it's the fabulous actress writer and comedian Rose Matafeo. Do you know all the other famous people from New Zealand? Have you met? Here's the key question. Have you met all of those people? Rose, yeah. have you met Sam Neill? I have met Sam Neill! <laughs>